Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, as it, of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord, our God, is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large, with walls up to the sky. And we even saw the Anakites there. And I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, 
all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way to go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it. You shall not enter it either, but your assistant... Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead the Israelites to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight. As the Lord our God has commanded us, so every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But then the Lord said to me, Tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you, they chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Uh, well, I've been looking forward to this sermon this week, actually, uh, because tonight I get to speak on the inspiring, uplifting and heartwarming topic of sin. Now, the only consolation I want to offer you, the thing for you to look forward to, is that at the end of the talk, I'm going to remind you to go to the dentist. Okay? Point one, Jesus versus Moses. Uh, We're continuing the better theme that we've been tracing throughout this series uh, in the book of Hebrews. We've seen that Jesus is better than before. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is a better sibling. Tonight, Jesus is better than Moses. It's almost impossible to overstate the significance of Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses is the founder of the nation of Israel. Uh, He is the one through whom God performs those incredible signs and wonders to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Moses is the one who receives the actual copies of the Ten Commandments, uh, twice, in fact. Deuteronomy 34 will say in his obituary, there was no other prophet in Israel with whom God spoke face to face. With whom God spoke face to face. It's almost impossible to overstate the significance of Moses, but there is no comparison between Moses, the greatest servant of God's people, and Jesus, God's own son. You see three incredible descriptions of who Jesus is in verses 1 through 6. Uh, See if you can spot them. Pick it up with me in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. 
He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Okay, three descriptions of Jesus. Uh, The first two come in verse 1. Jesus is our apostle. Jesus is our apostle. And you probably notice that's an unusual way of describing Jesus. Normally you talk about Jesus and the 12 apostles, but here Jesus is described as an apostle, in fact, as our apostle. What will help is for you to remember that the word apostle just means someone who has been sent, uh, like an emissary or a messenger. I presume in calling him an apostle, the writer is reminding us of the way in which Hebrews began. You remember back at the start, in the past, God spoke to us in many times and in various ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the one whom God has sent. Second description of Jesus there from verse 1, he is our high priest. He is our high priest. Our priest is someone who intercedes for us on, for us on our behalf before God. Uh, however, that's such a big image, and in fact, all of chapters 4 through 8 are going to be devoted to that, so we'll put that off for tonight. But instead, I want to focus on the third way in which Jesus is described. He's described as, in verses 2 through 6, a faithful son over God's house. A faithful son over God's house. And not just a faithful servant in God's house, that was Moses. Jesus is even better. He is a faithful son over God's house. So look at how uh, the writer's reasoning flows from verses 3 through 6. In verse 3... He reminds us, starts with the analogy of a builder and a building. What he says is that the builder is more impressive than the building because the building is static and eventually it'll decay. Whereas the builder, builder can go on to even greater things. In verse 4, the writer points out that God is the supreme builder. He is the one who made everything out of nothing. And so then the conclusions come in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, we're told that Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house. And his ministry, verse 5, was to bear witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. As an aside, when you reflect on the importance of Moses, you must never dismiss the significance of the Old Testament. But neither do you ever settle for it. And never do you go back to it. Because Moses is anticipating something better that's still to come. Uh, That thing, of course, is Jesus. who's not just a servant in the house. He's the son over the whole house. And this is where the writer ties the construction or the building metaphor together. Um, What he's saying here is that uh, Jesus is a son who rules over the house, whereas Moses was just a servant within that house. Now, clearly there's a double meaning to the word house going on here. He's talked about building houses, and you can have physical buildings. But you can also use the word house to describe a household. Maybe a dynasty, or a clan, or a family. 
What's really extraordinary is that in verse 6, the writer says, we are God's house. We are God's house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The image is a bit complicated, but I think what the writer is saying in calling us God's house The writer is reminding us that in the end, our lives are not primarily about how we serve God, what we might build or do for him. Rather, in calling us the building, the writer is reminding us that it's the builder, God himself, who is entitled to the highest glory and honour. In fact, verse 6 explicitly says that our role is simply to hold firmly to our confidence and our hope. In the end, what saves us is God's grace, not our works or our labours. We'll come back to that idea at the end. Well, the first part of chapter 3 is about how Jesus is better than Moses. The rest of the chapter exhorts us to, you can see the heading there, point 2, Learn from our ancestors' mistakes, don't repeat them. Learn from our ancestors' mistakes, don't repeat them. You see, at this point in the letter, it all of a sudden gets very serious. There's lots of talk about sin's deceitfulness, about hardness of heart, about rebellion, even about God's anger. Now, why? Why does the writer choose to focus on those subjects instead of on the wonder and the majesty of the sun over God's house? That would be so much more uplifting. Well, I suspect that what's going on is that having reflected on how faithful Moses was as a servant and how faithful the son was, Jesus was as the son, it's reminded the writer of how unfaithful God's people have been by comparison. And in particular, he's going to refer to the incident that was our second reading from Deuteronomy 1, from Israel on the edge of the promised land. And he's going to tell us to learn from their mistakes, not repeat them. I'm going to read out verses 7 through 19 again. As I do, you can see the structure or the outline. It's printed there for you on your handout. In verses 7 through 11, there's the example, Israel on the edge of the promised land. And in verses 16 through 19, there's the same example all over again, repeated for emphasis. In between, there's an exhortation. Don't do what they did. Okay? Follow along with me. Pick it up in verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As it has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? 
And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now, two comments, one about the example, one about the exhortation. The comment about the example in verses 7 through 11 and verses 16 through 19 You can see here that the writer is quoting from another part of the Bible. It's actually from Psalm 95. The writer quotes a considerable length to remind us of our ancestors' mistakes. Now, of course, the question is, what was the core of their failure? What did they do wrong? Well, the answer is there in verse 8. They hardened their hearts. Verse 10. They had hearts that went astray. Verse 9. They were always testing and trying God. As I said, I think Psalm 95 is describing the situation from Deuteronomy 1, from the second reading, the one that Nick brought to us. You see, somehow the Israelites had concluded that the God who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, who'd gone to extraordinary lengths to bring them to the very edge of this land that he has promised them, somehow they managed to conclude in their minds that God was going to leave them to die there. Now, it makes no sense when you think about it. If that were the case, if God had brought them to the edge of the promised land to die, why would he have bothered rescuing them from Egypt in the first place? Why would he have brought them all the way through the wilderness up to the edge of the promised land when, quite frankly, they'd been pretty uncooperative and rebellious and untrusting every step of the way. Think back to the history of Israel. When Moses first rallies the people, they shout him down. When they are brought out of Egypt and find themselves sandwiched between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, they turn against Moses yet again. When the seas are majestically and magically parted and they pass through to the other side, what's the first thing that they do? They start complaining about the lack of food and water, as if somehow they will die now. To be brutally honest, God had plenty of reasons to abandon them before now, but he hadn't done so. And the proof that, to the very end, they have hardened their hearts is that even when God says, fine, this adult generation will not enter the land... What do they do at that point? They decide, oh, we'll go in now. And they're promptly and soundly defeated. It all sounds so incredibly stupid, doesn't it? Think of all the things that God has done for them in their lifetime, and yet still they won't trust him. Sounds so incredibly stupid. As if we'd ever do something like that. Well, that points us then to what the writer will call sin's deceitfulness. And so, here's my comment about the exhortation. The exhortation? Learn from our ancestors' mistakes, don't repeat them. So look at it, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
Clearly having described what happened back in Deuteronomy 1, the writer thinks that his readers, his hearers, you and I, he thinks we are at the same risk of unbelief as our ancestors. That's why I think in verse 15, he quotes Psalm 95 yet again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Now, why does he repeat himself in verse 15? Uh, Well, to use an analogy that I suspect many in this gathering in particular are familiar with, um, I think in verse 15, it's like he's retweeting something that he's just heard. You see, he's taken a message that he wants to reapply right here, right now. Today, do not harden your hearts. Put positively, though, the writer is actually very practical. And he does have positive words of encouragement. You see, Hebrews 3 is not just about what to avoid, it's also about what we ought to do. Verse 13 Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And again in verse 14 We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Hold your original conviction firmly to the very end? It sounds awfully like verse 6. Hold firmly to our confidence and hope. Once again, the thing that we are exhorted to do is to hold on to Jesus. Well, For the rest of the talk, I'll just spend a bit of time reflecting on what it means practically to not have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Because that's the thing that we're exhorted not to do. So what does it look like in practice to not have a sinful, unbelieving heart? You can see three suggestions there on your handout. Uh, Firstly, don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Do you notice there back in verse 13 that the writer doesn't say, doesn't warn against sin's horror or sin's emptiness or even sin's stupidity? I presume he doesn't need to warn us against that because none of us would ever fall for that. In the end, what we're most easily deceived by are things that look shiny. And attractive. Don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So I spent time reflecting this week on the many ways in which I deceive myself about my sinfulness. Here are just three. Firstly, I tell myself I can have it all. I can have it all. Look at how Hebrews 11 describes Moses. A little bit later on in the book. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Notice the phrase there in verse 25. 
the pleasures of sin. It doesn't say the evils of sin, because I presume no one would be enticed by that. The pleasures of sin. And of course, the big risk and the big problem for us in Adelaide is that we think we can have it all because life here is so pleasing. It is so pleasant. Second way in which I deceive myself about sinfulness, I tell myself that my heart's not that sinful. My heart's not that sinful. Now this plays out in two ways. Now the first is the refusal to acknowledge that actually all of us have a sinful heart to a degree. I've given you a quote there from Thomas Cramner, the great 16th century reformer. Many of you are familiar with this quote. Here's what Cramner says. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and then the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and then afterwards the mind justifies. Let me give you an example that will ring true for almost all of us. Take chocolate. Chocolate is good. I'm going to eat that chocolate. I deserve the chocolate. I could work off that block of chocolate at the gym tomorrow. Actually, it would be very rude of me to refuse God's good blessing of chocolate in my life. What the heart loves... The will chooses, and then the mind justifies. All of us have a sinful heart. But the point I want to make here is that for all of us, there is something of that inner Pharisee that makes us think, my heart's not that sinful, not compared to everyone else. I would never be as untrusting as those Israelites on the edge of the promised land. I mean, if I'd seen all the miracles that God had performed, if I'd seen the Red Sea parted before me, I wouldn't have doubted. I wouldn't have hardened my heart. And I say that if that's what you're thinking, then Jesus tells a very powerful story directed squarely at you. It's in Luke 18 where he describes a situation where two men come to church. One of them a Pharisee, one of them a tax collector. The Pharisee, in leading prayers that night, gets up and says, Dear God, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I have. Thank you that I am not like other people. What an extraordinary thing to think let alone to say out loud. Jesus says it, though, I think, because all of us at some point think, my heart is not that sinful, even if the other guy's is. But the third way, I think, in which we deceive ourselves about about our sinfulness is that we start to think that God is holding out on me. That God is holding out on me. You see, when life is hard, unbearably hard, it can be tempting to think that somehow either God is not good or God is not able. Either think that God is not good or that he is not able. That's the essence of the rebellion in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And yet here's the thing. 
we New Testament believers have even better reasons for confidence, hope and conviction in God's goodness and in his power. Jesus became human for us. He tasted death for us. What doubt can we have about God's love and power expressed for his people? In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? To be really blunt, our unbelief is even worse than that of the Old Testament Israelites because we have seen even more of God's goodness and power. That's pretty confronting, isn't it? This is exposing what our hearts are like. Uh, Can I say that if you want to think more about this, if you're serious about this, uh, then as I've tried to do in each of these talks, I want to give you a book recommendation so that you can keep thinking these matters through. You'll see a reference there uh, to Jerry Bridges' excellent book, which he titled, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. Well, practical suggestions on how to not have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Firstly, don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Secondly, encourage one another. Encourage one another. This is verse 13. But encourage one another daily. So according to verse 13, God's most practical antidote to a hard heart is each other. It's each other. And don't get me wrong, it's true. God might intervene supernaturally to soften your heart. But most commonly, the way he does so is through the exhortation of others. As I like to say, it's much easier to sin in private. So make your life as public as you can. It's much easier to sin in private. So make your life as public as you can. Because in the end, transparency is one of the best ways to expose sin's deceitfulness. And once again, that's pretty confronting. It's confronting in our modern society where we fiercely protect our privacy. Where we fiercely protect our right to think and to do whatever we want without ever being judged by others. And yet, according to verse 13, God's most practical antidote to a hard heart is openness and transparency with others. My question is this. If you are serious about not hardening your heart, what's stopping you from asking for help from someone else? Why won't you open up to another? Is not the fact that God sees everything about you sufficient to overcome your fear of what others might think? Now, to put it positively, I want to draw your attention to the fact that in verse 13, the writer says, encourage one another. He doesn't say rebuke one another. He doesn't say hold one another to account. Although those ideas are somewhat implied, I think. 
the main word he uses is to encourage. And I wonder if even in the choice of that word, it gives you just a little bit of confidence and hope. So what are we to encourage each other in? Well, the answer ultimately comes in verse 14. We're to encourage each other in the fact that we have a share in Christ himself. But I actually want to go a bit further today than simply asking, why won't you ask for help? See, to take it to the logical conclusion, what's stopping you from proactively offering encouragement to others, even if unsolicited? Now, again, don't mishear me. I'm not trying to promote busybodiness, but surely you care about the rest of the family? Surely you can't stand by and watch if a sibling is careering out of control. Now, to be really practical for a moment, Trinity Church Adelaide is a very big church. There's about a thousand members in our church spread across multiple gatherings of hundreds each. And as you know, at the moment, we're going through a restructuring, trying to work out how it is that we can best serve each other and the community around us. In that context, I think that one of the best ways you can both encourage and be encouraged is in one of our midweek small groups. This week I discovered that about 50% of our church family is in a midweek small group. Which potentially means half of our church is trying to go it alone in avoiding sin's deceitfulness. Which seems to me to be a recipe for disaster. Don't be hard on my sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another. And so here's my third and final practical suggestion. Repeat daily. Repeat daily. Now to finish with a really, really, really obvious point, look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Daily as long as it is called today. Which means... Now wait for it. This is not rocket science. That means every day. It means every day. There's not a lot of wiggle room here, is there? Daily, as long as it's called today. And I presume the reason why the writer says daily, as long as it's called today, is because, well, even a midweek small group and a Sunday gathering is insufficient to avoid a hard heart. So, here's my point about the dentist. And I know you've been waiting, eagerly excited. What's he going to say about the dentist? Well, you can probably guess it. Uh, It's actually pretty corny, but I think it works. Every time I go to the dentist, as I'm leaving, they give me this exhortation. Floss daily. Floss daily. This is how they commission me when I leave. Floss daily. 
I've never had a dentist say to me, floss occasionally. Or floss weekly. Or floss when you feel like it. Or floss when your teeth feel furry. Or floss on the night before your next checkup. <laughs> floss daily. I presume that's because the value is cumulative and incremental, not instant and immediate. The value is cumulative and incremental, not instant and immediate. So, to make the obvious link, back to Hebrews 3, the way to avoid hardening your heart to sin's deceitfulness is not to wait for a periodic checkup. It's to be encouraged daily that we have a share in Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, that's such wonderful news, it will stop us building, any, building up any resistance to Christ. If you don't mind the really terrible pun, it will prevent any calcification or hardening of our hearts. Now how do you form a habit? How do you form a daily habit? Once again, not rocket science. Here's how you form a habit. You start tonight. You repeat it tomorrow. And you do it the day after that. And the really lovely thing is that once you've formed a habit, well, it's not a disaster if you happen to miss it once because you'll find yourself always angling back to it by instinct. Well, like last week, I'm going to finish this talk with the first verse for next week. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore... Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your goodness, in your kindness and mercy, you've given us your son over your house. Thank you that we have a share in him and so we pray, give us courage and strength and all that we need to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Amen.